3: with a price tag. You were slave to a flag in a country that clearly doesn't love you when they probably never have. Told you turn the other cheek and they made it with a bat. Fucked them protesting them sit Told you go fight in the war. Vietnam, you died good riddance. That man of the house rule took you from your siblings. Turned around a pump crack right up in your city, and they turned all your leaders to martyrs. You was off in the war. Now who was guarding your daughters? It was riots in the streets. Killed Malcolm and Martin. Called a National Guard up because we ride what our got up and that was blood in your garden. Second Amendment don't apply to you. Every Thing that they told you was a lie to you. See they scared of your skin and they dyna shoot. Take the American dream, and then you die to piss. One day it'll all make sense. If it ain't about power, then it don't make sense. But none of that money matters when you live in madness. The one day you figure out that all you got is this. Peace, love in the middle finger. Right on, peace, love in the middle finger. Right on, peace, love in the middle finger. Right on, peace, love in the middle
2: finger. Afternoon and welcome to Black Talk Radio News. My name, of course, is Scotty Reed. I'm broadcasting from behind these enemy lines known as USA Inc. Today's date is June 10th, 2015. Again, today's date is June 10th, 2015. Uh, We do have a guest scheduled for today. Um, Our guest today, who should be joining us shortly, I think about 10 minutes after the hour, uh, will be David Johnson Sr., we are going to to discuss drug war issues in the United States. He has a book that he has written. The name of that book is "Drug Kingpin: Fact Fiction, Friend or Foe," which is about the key question about whether or not black men are drug kingpins. the The, the book deals with the flow of narcotics into the United States and their origins. And so, y'all know I. Focus a lot on the drug war, especially as it relates to 21st century slavery and human trafficking. Uh, the vast majority of the people that we see on prison plantations today, why are they there? Not because of rape, not because of murder, not because of robbery. No, they are in there because of nonviolent, man-made up, so-called, drug crimes and that and, and that's a big problem that's a big problem especially especially when the United states government and we discussed briefly yesterday the investigations into the d e a um even though Congress isn't investigating what many news reports have uh stated in the past year about the d e a having deals with the Sinaloa drug cartel allowing them to smuggle drugs into the United States for information on their rivals another underreported story was a, a CIA agent was caught by so called minute men guarding the border and he was stopped in, in a truck and that truck was found to have uh, cocaine in it and those bricks of cocaine had the stamp of the Sinaloa drug cartel um so yeah, with all of the people that are in prison, they are in prison, number one, because they need new slaves for the for the twenty first century plantations. I you know, bookmark made sure I bookmarked the unicorn video, I'm gonna write an article later, um, showing all of these black women in this call center doing call center work. You know, they they those are slaves and they're being paid slave wages. They're not being paid minimum wage. They not being paid the 30,000 on up salary that I knew that many people had when I was working in the call center. Uh, no, they not being paid that kind of money so that they can still help their mothers, grand, you know, the grandparents of their children or, or, you know, the father who may be raising the children cause she locked up. No, they not paying them so they can still contribute. To those children's needs, no, they they just paying them slave wages, slave wages where oftentimes, you know, they are are forced to buy things like toilet paper and and feminine napkins and tampons and things of that nature. You know, they that that's what they, what their money goes towards, and and so you should have a problem uh with this dynamic. You should have a problem because the United States isn't trying to stop any kind of drugs coming into this country. Whatsoever. Many, there is much evidence again to, to suggest that they are the primary, uh, uh, facilitators of all this drug trafficking. Cause I would like to know, you know, um from somebody. I would like to ask a congressman. I already have, you know, my own answer, uh, deducted from or deduced from the, uh, evidence. But I would like to ask a congressman, you know, I heard Hillary Clinton talking about um, all of this heroin, this heroin epidemic even though I wouldn't even call it an epidemic that's happening in rural America and you know cause of uh, people addicted to painkillers when they can't get those you know heroin is another opiate that they can use that will get them the same feeling you know dull pain or whatever the high that they, they looking for so how did all this heroin get into the country there are no poppy fields that I know of in America you know Uh, But I know there were a lot of poppy fields in Afghanistan. They've had over the past couple of years record crops. And there have even been reports with photographs, with statements from United States uh, uh, military men talking about, how they are allowing those poppy farmers in in Afghanistan to grow that poppy because you know that's one of the few incomes that they can have to support their family is by growing poppy and then selling that you know and, and who I don't know if they're manufacturing the heroin you know that process or processing the poppy and turning it into heroin or if they're shipping it off somewhere else and somebody else is doing it and so well. If you take that approach with the Afghanistan farmers and allowing them to to grow this stuff, not that I'm saying that the United States should be trying to stop anybody from growing and whatever the hell they want to grow. But what about all of these people who who are trying to survive on the streets of America without jobs, without any good prospects of jobs, and the only thing their income they are left with is to the drug trade. But nobody's saying, well, let's allow these people to sell drugs because that's one of the few incomes that they can bring in to support their families. And we don't want them on food stamps or or public housing assistance or anything like that. So let's leave these people alone uh, as long as they're not involving children in their transactions. Let's just leave them alone. No, that that's not the case. That's not what's going on. So most certainly i'm looking forward to uh mr johnson coming on and talking about some of the information that's contained in his book um he is also a resident of baltimore maryland yeah that that place where they have been laying off teachers and and funding juvenile detention facilities so i think we actually have mr johnson joining us on the line do we have you on the line sir yes sir i'm here thank you for joining us today Thank you for having me, definitely. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to our conversation today because I feel like, um, this area of so, uh, of, of drugs, drug trafficking and, and all of that, that is having a negative impact primarily on the black community in more ways than one. You know, we certainly don't want people using drugs and, and, you know, self-medicating. Uh, along those lines to where it becomes an addiction that gets out of control and then leads to, to further bad choices, uh, down the road. But at the same time, I don't think that the, the million or so people that's locked up for nonviolent drug offenses do belong in prison. So this is a, this is a very important issue in terms of our, our people. So before we get started, would you give uh, our listeners, those who may not have had a chance to look at our program description for today, uh, can you just give them a little bit of background information on yourself as much as you would like to share?
4: Uh, well, I might as well go to the root. Uh, my name is David L. Johnson Sr. I am a community activist here in Baltimore, and I got, actually got involved in community activism Somewhere right around 1988-89 time frame, myself being a young man, an ex-drug dealer who always had a specific thirst for knowledge. And in the process of my dealing and selling drugs, I would always slide away. I would go to the libraries. I would read. I would research and study. But the more I would look at it, I learned that we were apparently being set up and that this thing was being engineered at a greater level than we were actually understanding as a community. So from there, I began to do my readings, my studies, my research. I went to school for a little bit. I tried to major in journalism and investigative reporting. And from there, I got heavily involved in community activism. And as a result, I ended up publishing a book, which is entitled Drug Kingpin, Fact, Fiction, Friend or Foe. And then that book led to a career in journalism and investigative research that has produced a whole host of other activities that I guess we'll have to get into as we go along.
2: Most certainly, and again, we have linked to the book "Drug Kingpin: Fact Fiction, Friend or Foe." Now, um, some of the information that I have uh, gotten from my assistant, uh, Miss Cece, shout out to Sister Cece, and you—you you had laid out criteria on how do we define a drug kingpin. So, uh, w- first, let's start with the definition. What's, what's your definition of a drug kingpin? Okay, the
4: definition of a drug kingpin would have to be someone that's actually involved in the drug trade in a manner that goes above and beyond that simple description, which the media would actually present as a young man on the corner with thousands of dollars in his pocket, but yet nothing more than uh, pocket change in comparison to the drug kingpins. Let's define this. A drug kingpin would have to be one who actually is able to maneuver the drug trade up and above all of the major levels, the 11 primary levels that actually bring drugs to the streets of America. Thereby, when we say, would we name the ExxonMobil corporations and their CEOs as kingpins, or would we name little pookie who makes the evening news? Unless we're understanding the chemical process that goes into the making of crack cocaine, heroin, and other drugs that are destroying the community, we can never, ever properly define any black man, even when they rise to the highest levels in the streets, drug dealing, as a drug kingpin, once we understand how
2: drugs are imported into our communities. Okay. Has Let me ask this question. Has there ever been a drug kingpin? A black drug kingpin? I'm sorry.
4: Uh, according to the definition and the research that we have learned, I would have to absolutely positively say no. Even when we look at the sensationalization of men like Nicky Barnes, uh, Frank Lucas, and uh, Frank Matthews, and others, we can still say that the majority of these men have never left the country of the United States. They've never taken a trip down to Colombia or down in Peru to actually make direct purchases and contacts they don't own the land, they don't own the chemical processes, they have no ships, no boats, and more importantly, they have no direct access to the shipping routes or the directions in which things could be brought into the country. So we'd actually have to hypothetically lay it out and then categorically define it and say, no, there's never been a black drug kingpin.
2: Now your, your book details, I'm not sure, is it 17 levels or is it 7 levels that it takes in order for one to be, uh, established as a quote unquote drug kingpin? Uh, is, is that, uh, right? 17 levels that it takes? I'm sorry. Yeah, there are 11, 11. 11 levels. 11 levels. Okay. And you, and, and, and the information I received says that black men only, uh, the final three only apply to black men who may be involved in drugs.
4: Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and if I could be allowed, let's let's run through them real quick. Sure. When we go to the entire route, you have to have farmers in whatever country they are, uh Bolivia, Peru, Colombia, the different places, the farmers have to cultivate the coca, the harvest and dry the leaves, they gotta make the pasta. And this happens every few months and it takes sometimes as many as two thousand farmers and although they're working separately, it takes at least two thousand farmers to manufacture and produce what would eventually come out to be about 45,000 kilos. Mm -hmm. From there, you got to deal with the guides who will lead you into the jungles to teach you uh, the routes, how to get in touch with the farmers to be able to do that. Before you get to the guides, there are the buyers. These are the big men. These are the Carlos Leda's, the uh, Pablo Escobar's, and the others that we were looking at. From there, they own the base labs. The base labs convert pasta into cocaine. Now, this is where it gets interesting because to convert that to cocaine, they need specific chemicals of ether and things of that nature. And some of the world's largest oil producers are also the same producers that produce these types of chemicals Mm -hmm. these men must buy these chemicals in mass bulk order in order to even produce the pasta and the cocaine
2: let let me let me just stop stop you there and and i hope you don't mind but when i feel like a guest has has um brought up a very important point i would like to stop them and expand on it Is, is that okay
4: that's perfectly fine, my
2: friend. Now, just think about what, what Mr. Johnson just said, the industrial chemicals that's needed to produce the final product, and only certain corporations produce these chemicals. Now, let's contrast that with the production of meth. We have seen that the United States government has gone through... Uh, has gone through the trouble of passing legislation to let's say limit the number of cold medicines that you can buy from a pharmacy you know just all kind of steps they have taken to to limit the ingredients that's need to make meth being sold to the public but I, I you know you seem to be very informed on this far more informed than i am because i never even considered these things you're bringing up but have we ever seen on a large level uh, i mean excuse me on an international level where this is being uh, addressed through legislation to prevent these people from getting uh those chemicals uh to be honest
4: no And, in fact, it's safe to say probably one of the more important books on crime and drugs that has ever been published was a book that was produced by a former CIA operative by the name of Kenneth Bucci. Kenneth Bucci's book was called CIA, Cocaine in America. Mm -hmm. Kenneth Bucci began to break down the process of a meeting that took place in which, at the time, CIA director William Casey... Who brought together all the heads of the cartels, the Colombian Cali cartel as well as the Medellin? The distinctive difference between the two: the Medellin cartel would be the equivalent of your local street boys who gathered up enough money and muscle to defend their turf.
2: Okay.
4: The Cali cartel, on the other hand, were Colombians as well, but they would be what you consider the street—I mean, the suit and tie boys who were the businessmen in Colombia who were actually used as the stepping stone by the Central Intelligence Agency and the United States government to bring us to the process of drug legalization. Now, we got to watch this because an interesting battle took place in the late 80s and going into the 90s, and this battle got past most of us in the black community. While they were building up and financing the Cali cartel, they were systematically destroying and dismantling the Medellin cartel so that they could make it more marketable when they started saying, let's do legalization, since we can't stop it, we need to figure out how to control it, let's medicate everybody. And then they began to enhance the levels of the approach that they took in the war on drugs by magnifying black-on-black street crime, making it appear as if it's out of hand. But the reality is the CIA was giving shipping routes, radar height standards, in which to fly planes below the radar Mm -hmm. to get the cocaine into the United States. And this was what escalated the war on drugs in the late 80s going into the 90s.
2: Okay, and and, and before um, I interrupted you, um, you were talking about the eleven levels, and so you were just talking about the chi- the chemicals, and so could you continue along that that line?
4: Yes, sir. Well, I think I left off at the uh, the base labs. The which base
2: labs, yes. Approximately
4: one and a quarter kilos of pasta is needed to just just in order to make. 375 kilos of pasta which which produces a 300 kilo base. It takes a great deal of the chemical. I'm not sure if you're understanding the depth of what they've laid out but it takes a great deal of just the chemical alone the ether and the other ingredients the cocaine hydrochloride that is used to make cocaine and heroin. These types of chemicals come from those large producers. We would have to stop and take an organized look at Carnico Phillips ExxonMobil, Sun, Philips, all of the different places that are oil manufacturers and producers around the world, we must understand their need to have absolute control over the global oil supply, because the oil supply and the drug supply have an intricate connection. Mm. Now, remember, in the process of laying out these base labs, we haven't even left the jungles of Colombia yet. Right. So how can black men be kingpins?
2: Mm. That, that's true. That's true. All right. So what? What? What's the next level?
4: So then, after the cocaine and the base and the is put together, you now need crystal labs, just like we hear in the news about white folks making crystal methany labs. There is a process now that goes about the process of transferring all of this crystal into actual cocaine, and or enough to produce a thousand grams. This is a very intricately detailed process. From there, you have to get into and get set up with the smugglers who act as the muscle or the military division of the cartels that are protected by the CIA so that when these labs produce the shipments, they arrange for transportation into the United States. You can't do this without large cargo planes. You cannot do this without access to ships and shipping containers. All of these things come in in the managing wholesale operations here in America which explains why there must be such an intense level of scrutiny and security now on all of the ports in your local areas, especially within the United States. And again, we still haven't left the jungles of
2: Columbia yet. Right. right. Let, let me interject just, just right quick because, you know, in the same way that I think, you know, you were detailing the misdirection of, of making it seem like black people were the problem with this drug epidemic and, and, and they weren't, you know, the ones that we're talking about now, the, the kingpins. But you just talked about the, the need for transportation, you know, cargo planes, ships. Um, actually, I think we heard a report about maybe three weeks ago, a month ago about a member of Congress. I think it is, uh, the Senate majority leader, I believe. Uh, I, I can't recall his name right now, but he's married to, uh, he's married into a, I think it's a Korean family. They're Asian and they own a, a, a large shipping company and, and that one of those ships was busted, you know, filled with, with drugs. So. I said all that to say this. So you mean to tell me the vast majority of these drugs aren't being brought into the country on the backs of immigrants sneaking across the deserts, across the border?
4: Nine times out of ten, when those types of people are caught with those small quantities, one or two kilos of cocaine, okay, we have to acknowledge. It's a great deal of money on the street level, right? but it's pennies in comparison to a 53-foot cargo container. Mm -hmm. stacked from bottom to top, filled with kilos of cocaine that just doesn't get touched, that makes it through customs, and then the various countries that can produce diplomatic immunity Mm -hmm. never had their cargoes searched by any means, it raises an eyebrow of suspicion beyond recognition. Mm. Now, let's look at something when we look at the development and the overall growth of the black community. Garvey decided that he would step into the one realm of the world of white supremacy that As of Garvey's death and the demise of the Black Star Line, no African person has ever been allowed to since step into the round of cargoes and shipping containers. We have to begin to ask ourselves, why is that?
5: Hmm.
4: There's a need. There's a need to protect this interest. Drugs are a 2 to $3 trillion a year industry. That's more money than the bottom 50 countries combined. Hmm. So it is an interest that has to be protected by the wealthy white supremacist families that rule this earth. So when I talk about it, I like to move the people beyond conspiracy theories. Let's get to a conspiracy in action. That way we can put a name and a face on what it is that's actually holding the communities back. Because more often than not, when we talk about this, it becomes internationalized and they make a boogeyman out of it, but we can never again Put particular companies, particular people, or particular groups right there in the Kingpin slot like mm-hmm.
2: we ought to. Right. Um, we do ha- have a caller. I want to let the callers know um, today you can call in by giving us a call on the conference line 530. 530- Eight eight one fourteen hundred. the access code is 549032 pound of course hit star 6 and 1 if you would like to comment I do see we have a, a caller in queue uh, let me go ahead and, and take this call 717 you are on Black Talk Radio News our guest today is Mr. David Johnson Sr we're talking about uh, what is and what ain't a drug kingpin what is your question or, or comment on this topic
5: Good brother Scottie, and,
2: uh, Is this Brother David Davis? Davis? Yeah, absolutely.
5: This is Brother Davis, a caller from uh, Wyoming. Uh, brother, I'm going to tell you, your research is spot on. We knew from the I.A.N. Contra affair that the government was need deep in drugs. We just didn't know how to do. But we That's have to right. understand. We are in a cryogenic life. Everybody is in a position of authority from... Wall Street on down who can make money in this process who is in it. And that eminent that uh, senator that you were talking about is Boehner. Boehner's Boehner, thank
2: you. Thank
5: Where literally they had a ship full, not just a few kilos, a ship full. So we That's have right. to understand that slavery has just been elevated to a supply and demand level at which finances now it's based on how much greed you have, not how much need you have. And in reality, the people who are doing the footwork, meaning those who are being most victimized by this so called war on crime, are the very people who can afford who can least afford the drugs in the first place. The sad part about all of this the sad part about all of this is that you haven't even hit on the fact that there's the arms industry that's involved in it. Because those things, black people are buying guns. These guns are being bought in along with the wave of drugs in order to give the impression so that the media can literally put this on the backs of black people when black people are not the perpetrators, they're the victims. And I, I, would, I, I salute your research, brother, and I'm definitely going to... Uh, pick up your book and anything else that you put out because I've seen it here clearly with your finger on the thing of what the source of our problems are in this area. Because, let's face it, Wall Street's been making money off drugs since Wall Street began back in, what was that, 1927 or so? So literally, you. you're, abs- you're absolutely right. That's, and that's one of the reasons why I stay tuned to Black Talk Radio.
2: Alright, thank you, Brother Davis, for giving us a call and, and sharing your insights. And yes, you are correct. That was, uh, John Boehner, John Boehner, the, uh, Senate Majority Leader. Uh, was there anything else, Brother Davis?
5: Um,
2: no, I think you're calling. I'm sorry, okay. Brother
5: Sky, I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna sit back and listen as usual. Okay. But, uh, thank you, Brother. And you have blessed my day once again for bringing me something, some insights that I knew
2: that I couldn't prove that someone has done too diligent enough for me to sit back and say okay where can I help and that's all we can do is start from where we are thank you brother Davis Q&A Q is cleared um, we have a question uh, by email uh, also if you want to send in a question via email just email it to admin as in administrator or admin at blacktalkradionetwork.com we got a uh, um, uh, email question for you mr johnson they want to know will your book be available in digital format in the near future i, I guess they're talking about like in a pdf uh format or is it just in paperback
4: um as we speak it's just in paperback but let me let me also confess to the community now this book the irony of this book is that this book was published in 1992. And when we first released the book, very few people paid it any attention because I and my father started an independent black press, and, and it was entitled the Controversial Writers Association. And i got to acknowledge that in our communities, you know how it is, we're always scrambling and struggling for funds and resources, but we realize how imperative it is to do the work, so then the work just gets done however it is. So bringing it to print was actually the hardest part. But when the community picked it up and began to support it, we just continued to just rerun it, in print, and decided that to maintain exclusive control and and, and copyrights and circulation rights, we kept it within the community and kept one black distributor, which is everyone's place in Baltimore, as the sole distributor of the book. And the issue within and of itself, I got to acknowledge, I haven't touched this issue in so long because I've been researching so many other subject matters. Okay. So I thank you for bringing it up. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Now, we had left off on the um, 11 qualifiers for a drug kingpin, and I think we stopped at talking about the transportation aspect of it.
4: Yes, sir. Well, and the way, that the way the transportation works, the smugglers have to arrange transportation to the U.S., and they usually do that by having this small circle, having to contact as few people as possible in doing so. And in order to pull this off, again, there must be intricate connections with shipping routes, with uh cargo planes and vessels that are able to fly. As the caller mentioned earlier, right around the time of the Iran-Contra hearings, one of the more interesting aspects that came out was the fact that Carlos Leda, who at that time was the right arm for Pablo Escobar's Medellin cartel, Carlos Leda was given exclusively... The radar height zones by which to fly a plane as well as the direct shipping routes in order to get cocaine into the United States. Mm -hmm. Probably one of the more interesting deals that got Pablo Escobar murdered December the 2nd, 1993, just one day before his birthday was an agreement, was a deal that was established, and it was mentioned loosely in the contra hearings when a meeting was established between CIA Director William Casey, who's now deceased, Pablo Escobar, the Medellin cartel, and several other other loose coalitions that were involved in drugs. The Central Intelligence Agency requested that all of the cartels that were manufacturing and producing drugs allow them to confiscate fifty percent of every shipment that they sent into the united states in exchange for allowing them the right to confiscate fifty percent of it to hold press conferences and look good on the evening news <laughs> the cartels would be allowed the right wow. to let the remaining half go through and keep their funding Escobar told them to get up and go ask yourselves and he walked out of the meeting and that was the initial meeting that sealed his fate we must understand that at that time that's when the giant influx of cocaine really hit the streets of America.
2: Now let's bring it. Let's bring let's bring it to 2015 or 2014. Uh Mexico's largest newspaper did an investigative report, and it was picked up, and and uh, others f- did further effort investigation, and it was actually in some of the mainstream news headlines, but they didn't give you the background. They just had a press conference where they showed these uh two members of the S- S- Sinaloa drug cartel who were given something like, I think they on, they didn't even get 20 years, alright, for smuggling tons of drugs. But that Mexico paper, the uh, reporter, uh, who did the investigation on that said that the, uh, DEA, the DEA, which is headed by Michelle Leonhardt we was just talking about her yesterday, had a deal with the Sinaloa drug cartel that allowed them uh, to smuggle the drugs I guess they were taking them to Chicago and then distributed from Chicago but what the Sinaloa drug cartel had to do was just give feed them information on their rivals so that they could again like you just stated you know take these pictures of these drug busts and you know money and guns and stuff and, and act like they really doing something were you aware of that report
4: yes sir and I think the irony of it is that if we were to backtrack that type of report tends to emerge at least every seven to ten years Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because see when we look at the timeline of that report it it backs us back at least ten years and we'll stop dead in the lap of Gary Webb who Mm -hmm. busted out his report on the Contra hearings and began to deal with brandone and all the other groups which tie in a lot of the investigators the research and even the FBI as far as the East and West Coast drug rivalries that took place in America If we were to track it back again a little further, we get into the timeline when Bobby Womack and others were singing about 110th Street, when Cotton Comes to Harlem, and all these other movies were coming out. So these same exposés keep popping up at least every 10, 15 years in advance of themselves, thus giving a report. Sometimes they're not even talking to us. They're giving reports to each other on the progress that they're making as certain things go
2: down. Mm, Okay. All right, so let, let's continue on with, with the 11 qualifiers.
4: Okay. As we move away from the smugglers,
2: okay, we
4: now get into the wholesalers. When you start dealing with the wholesalers, you're now dealing with uh, immigrants people who could possibly have been allowed the rights to come into the United States and other countries. Usually they're wealthy, usually they're business owners, because they have to be on the other side of the tracks in order to receive the shipments of the drugs as they come across the border. So now when you start dealing with these wholesalers, you have to look at international businesses that deal and ship items heavily to and fro in what the United States labels as the uh, drug producing countries. It is very imperative that the community watch specific businesses that deal in items like that because coming through customs, things that do get stopped, there are other things that are shipped by way of governments because, again, diplomatic immunity, these things are never searched. These things are never stopped.
0: Mm -hmm. We'll
4: say that if Boehner's boat was caught filled with cocaine, then that's, Uh, tip of the iceberg in comparison to what else has gotten through and nothing was
2: ever said about it. Right, right. Just that one ship, you know, it could have been a hundred ships for all we know. Yeah, they're, they're only, you know, getting a fraction of it. So, yeah. So, um, so the distributors, okay. You, you just talked about the distributors. And so, will we, you know, you mentioned Gary Webb. And so, you know, uh, he brought, he, uh, revealed to us Ricky Ross, Rick Ross, freeway, uh, Ricky w- Ross. So will he fall into that area as a distributor? not yet not yet okay. Ricky Ross still he's still way down the totem still pole way down. despite
4: okay. millions that he's earned he was way down the totem pole Okay. And, okay. And, and one of the more interesting things that puts Ricky Ross way down the totem pole is when we watch his telling of his own story and his own tale and the depth of his biography was how he actually stumbled across his own connect by complete and utter accident
2: hmm.
4: which means he stumbled across major wholesalers Who then had to introduce him to someone that was a level above them, which was the major distributors, who usually buy multiple kilo shipments and then sell them as singular or as smaller group kilo shipments to dealers such as Rick Ross. Okay. it's at this level where specific cuts begin to be introduced into the drug trade. It lessens the quality and the purification of some of these things so that by the time it hits the street, now the people that are in the final stages of it begin to try to stretch things so that they, too, can even make a large percentage of a profit for themselves.
2: Okay. All right. Uh um I do want to let the listeners know cuz I have been getting some calls but uh before our program I had a lot of people calling the studio line and I only use the studio line for the radio program. So I I blocked those calls. Uh, but so if you are trying to, uh, also call in on the studio line, it is now open, but it is only for the purpose of discussing the subject matter on the radio program today. That telephone number 704-951-5030. Of course, there's also the conference line. Just hit star six and one to queue up in the conference line. Okay. So, so Rick Ross isn't at that level of the distributor that we just got through talking about in the 11 levels of what makes a drug. Kingpin. So what comes after that? Okay, after the major distributors, now comes your street dealers. This is where you
4: get your Rick Ross and others that hit that level.
2: Okay. Now,
4: it's at this stage where you see a indeterminate series of transitions that can take place. A dealer can buy hundreds of kilos of cocaine. But now before it hit the streets, he's got to, as they say in the street, put his cunt on it, put his smash or put his hit on it, right. to repackage it, to make the weight that he purchased perhaps double. Mm-hmm. This is where single kilo sales to quarter pounds and ounces and things of that nature start to break down. Every now and then, on that large national scale, we have a handful of black men. This is why we can name them because it's only a handful that actually make it even to this level or this stage of the drug distribution
2: ring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, do you mind sharing some of those names? Uh, some of the names evade me. Let's let's go with names
4: like uh, Lil Melvin Williams in the Baltimore region, okay. uh, Junior Bunk uh the the uh the Marlows the Tamirs, the different ones that they played out when Baltimore did the series The Wire mm-hmm. when you take names like that that in the communities it's pumped up and even overplayed in the media, mm-hmm. usually these are men that are just a few steps and or levels above the young brothers that are on the street corner right right but by the time media and a lot of the press, we must understand again this connection this is not conspiracy theory, this is conspiracy in action. One of the things that makes this thing work so tightly is that if central intelligence is involved at the varying levels and degrees, then there also are cover jobs that are provided for other central intelligence agency officers that work at local papers that are also fed tips, that are given direct information, that are understanding how the game actually works on such intricate levels. So, unless our community is really looking at all of that, we miss a lot of key details because the media is also not just exposing black men for crimes of little or nothing, but they're also protecting others that are shipping it in right in our face.
2: You know, yesterday, um, we're talking about Columbia okay and and how stuff can be right in your face now yesterday I had shared a report with the listeners about uh, the congressional investigations into the DEA but I think it may not be it may be the inspector uh, general Um and one of the things that they being investigated for was when the reports first came out mainstream media was saying that you had these DEA agents down there in Columbia who were engaging in sex parties with sex workers that were paid for by the cartels now when I read the report yesterday now the sex worker's are not paid for by the cartels down there, but now, oh, it was the DEA agents using American tax dollars to purchase these sex workers, and, and that just didn't really make any sense uh, uh, to me. What do you mean the American tax dollars? You mean what, what? Did they come out their own pocket and pay for this themselves, and how of a sudden did it change from the cartels were paying for the sex workers for the DEA agents to now, oh, uh, you know, the DEA agents was using federal tax, dollars to throw these sex parties and so i think that that right there is evidence of a cover-up and also also it is evidence of the relationship between these agents in these government agencies with the cartels i mean because you why would a cartel have a sex party pay for sex workers to service you know dea agents so i mean that that suggests a relationship there
4: Exactly. And then the larger part of the question would be even for the press. How do you know? Mm-hmm. See, at some levels of the game, there is no uh, privacy or the, or the hiding of the sources. Sometimes some information becomes so high level that there is no hiding of the sources, that the sources themselves speak based upon the validity of the information so that even the cartels would actually know who's telling what because this is a tight-knit organization. Okay. Now, one of the things that we got to look at is with the advent of NAFTA, TRAFTA, and some other laughter, We we, we got to look at those things. And now the TPP. Because, that's right. Mm-hmm. Because see, when, we, when we look at those things, we got to understand that these things opened up that super highway mm-hmm. that runs all the way from Latin America on up into Canada.
2: And and, yeah. and, and, you know, Mr. Johnson, just on the Trans-Pacific, uh, partnership, uh, it, which again is another trade agreement, but this is with Asian, com- uh, uh, um, nations. And we have known that in the area of what they might call, it, uh, um, you, the golden triangle comes to my mind, you know, which, right. which I learned. So I hadn't even considered that the TPP might be about, you know, facilitating The trafficking of more drugs from those Asian nations into the United States. I hadn't even considered that. I swear your information is so timely. (laughs) Go ahead, sir. I was just saying your information is so timely in that if we pay attention to what's in the news, we can make those connections. If we got the right, right, I guess, foundation or, or background information in which to view these things and how they are impacting us.
4: That's correct. And and, and and now let's let's look at some other things that we've got to factor into the equation as well. Okay. Uh, Mission Impossible. Tom, Tom Cruise had a series of movies, I think it was three parts, that showed the depth of how these international agencies operate. These spy networks send people in sometimes. They're, they're under such deep cover that in the any event anything goes wrong, that no agency will vouch for them, and they're more or less just out there on their own until things can be sorted out. Well, we would have to take the validity of that and look at it quite extensively because these news media reports, these coverages, these intricately detailed connections that always throw the community a fish, we have to understand even some of these agents, when they're under such deep cover, they can't come in out of the cold to file a report or to have an assessment of their work presented to them. So, again, sometimes some of the news stories as they break, though they're read by us and picked up it's so heavily encoded and that they're not even talking to us they're talking to one another about the state of affairs of a particular project that's read in code
2: Hmm. Hmm. and so that that would suggest then um collaboration with the news corporations which we 100%. Because which we know in in the past from you know we have a program called Political Prisoner Radio where we talk about current political prisoners that may have been Black Panther Party members Black Liberation Army members and so on and so on from the black liberation struggle and and we I know and I hope, you know, most of the people that are listening to that program knows that the news media played an intricate role in the demonization of the Black Panther Party and to help the FBI sell this, this open warfare on these black organizations that were doing nothing more than trying to uplift their community. So the new American news media has had, has long collaborated um, with the U.S. government in, in covering up these things and, and pushing forward, you know, front cover stories or whatnot.
4: That, that, that's a beautiful point. And if, if we were to back up 50 years, the week before Malcolm X was murdered, Malcolm X laid out something to us, and we can find that quote in Malcolm X's speech. I think it's called Malcolm X Talks to Young People. We want to back up and listen to something very intricately detailed that Malcolm said when they wouldn't let his plane land and they wouldn't let him get off the plane in France.
0: Mm -hmm.
4: Malcolm did say that the government of France works in conjunction with the government of Britain and the government of the United States. He said that there's one international complex or combine. Now, though Malcolm did not quite know the name of the organization that's actually the thread that holds it all together. He actually came so close that when we say the companies he was going against, the organizations that Malcolm was fighting, though he didn't see it, we now can stand and say with honor, with pinpoint precision, Malcolm was calling out the Council on Foreign Relations, which Victor Marchetti and John Marks in their book, CIA and Cult of Intelligence, acknowledged was the organization that had the CIA set up and that the CIA answers to the Council on Foreign Relations, not to the United States government, and that it acts as a hitman for the gangster group that protects all these corporations and organizations on Wall Street that bring us drugs on a daily basis. That's how big this story is.
2: Wow, wow. Let's, um I, I'm overdue, way overdue, uh, for a station identification break and we want to run a couple of, uh, public service announcements. Can, can you, how much time do you have with us, um, Mr. Johnson? Can you hang with us some I, more?
4: Yes, sir, I can hang. I allotted the time just for you.
2: Alright, thank you, thank you Again, if you have any questions, comments, or observations You can give us a call at 530-881-1400 The access code is five four nine pounds Hit star 6 and 1 to come in on air Uh The studio line, that's 704-951-5030 Stay tuned, we will be right back on the other side The
1: Honorable Elijah Muhammad has stopped us from stealing And we did steal He stopped us from gambling, he stopped us from cheating, and he stopped us from lying. Stealing runs rampant in Harlem. Gambling runs rampant in Harlem. All types of evils and uh, vices that tear apart our community run rampant in Harlem. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad doesn't condemn the victims, he goes to work on the victims. He doesn't say that all of you should go to jail because you have fallen victims to the evils that white man has brought into the community. He teaches you and me the religion that God has given to him as the only cure for the evil habit the white man has brought here among us. Profanity, you don't find it among Muslims. He stops us from using profanity, from being boisterous, from being rude and loud, and, and encourages us to be courteous, mannerly, and to exercise discipline and respect for authority at all times. He teaches us to obey the law, to respect law enforcement officers, as long as these law enforcement officers respect themselves, and respect the law that they represent. The the Honorable Elijah Muhammad has eliminated laziness from among his followers. He teaches us to be thrifty, channel our money that we earn, in an intelligent direction. He keeps here taking us out of the tavern. We don't throw our money away there. He has taken us out of the bars and the nightclub, We don't throw our money away there. We don't stand on the corner now without a job. When you become a mum, he makes us get a job. He makes us go to work. He makes us exercise or exert energy in our own behalf. And all of this type of teaching that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is doing among the black people in this country has been instrumental in producing a new type of people, a new thinking people, people with a new action, a new attitude, and a new behavior.
2: The Liberated Minds Black Homeschooling Education Expo kicks off on July 17th through the 19th in Atlanta, Georgia. The Liberated Minds Black Homeschooling Education Expo was established in 2012 by Rooster Fruits and the Liberated Minds Black Homeschooling Education Association for the strong purpose of providing quality culturally-based resources, educational training, and support to black African homeschooling, non-homeschooling parents, and educators alike. This work is to assist in the cultivation of excellence and empowerment of our black children. The Expo also provides a thriving outlet and platform for small black independent businesses that specialize in retailing and or creating culturally conscious products and or services for the development of our youth. For for, for more information on the Liberated Minds Black Homeschool and Education Expo that will be occurring during the 18th through the 19th in Atlanta, go to Liberated Minds Expo. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for live programming schedules. Visit us on the web at BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. And welcome back. Again, you're listening to Black Talk Radio News. We broadcast every Monday through Friday at 4 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Kingpin, fact, fiction, friend, or foe. Um, before we, we took that uh, break uh, Mr. Johnson you were talking about the corporate involvement and you know you mentioned earlier their involvement in terms of supplying the chemicals that are used to process uh, heroin cocaine and, and what not but um, we also know that the banks, cause I, I'm down here in North Carolina, Charlotte. I don't live in Charlotte, just outside of Charlotte, but it's considered the same, second largest banking center outside of New York City, you know, with Wall Street and all of that. But Wacovia, which is now owned by Wells Fargo, Wacovia was a bank that was headquartered here in North Carolina. And shortly before Wells Fargo, uh, purchase, uh, Wachovia. Uh, Wachovia got busted, uh, uh, laundering drug money from these Mexican currency exchange houses. But the thing they got me was, and, and they weren't the first ones, and I'm sure they won't be the last ones. Now, so, what, what, what bothers me is, in every case of these banks getting caught laundering drug money, is that they always Get a deferred prosecution, meaning no criminal prosecution. Um, they sign an agreement where they pay a fine, w- which, you know, you would think, well, if you identify this as drug money, all right, you would think you would seize all of it, but they only find them a portion of that, that drug money that they accused them of laundering. So they're still coming out with a profit, even after they paid a large fine. So, um, um, I mean, could you speak to it on the on the banking, you know, level?
4: Well, let's let's look at it like this. Okay, it could really be considered more or less a promise to pay.
2: Promise to pay. The,
4: the, yes. See, see, the banking industry within and of themselves having to answer to even a larger segment of power that really goes unnoticed. So these men are needed. Banking is a very sophisticated skill set. Okay. that's required to move monies around. And, and based on just small percentages moving a zero or digit here or there can make a world between life and death between one whose money comes up missing and or one who keeps the books right and exact. Now, we would have to understand that you can't run undercover slush funds. You can't maneuver money from banks and hedge funds to foundations and run inner-city programs, jobs training programs, uh, recreation centers. You can't do all those things without a limitless supply of funds and the sources. Therefore, you do small loans. You charge an interest rate or percentage fee, but the majority of the money that comes back comes back by way of drugs. You need those bankers there with that sophisticated accounting skill set that's able to move at the drop of a hat when various agencies of the alphabet soup calls upon them for slush funds to be transferred. And the community, it's not a real intricate problem to understand it's just never fully explained to us in a way where we know which groups and which agencies answer to who so that we can work our way up the chain of command and call it for what it really is this is is probably one of the biggest more internationally woven conspiracies in the history of America but nobody really touches it because we get lost in the petty details.
2: You know, just listening to you speak on that and pondering the question further in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, like you were saying, how Pablo Escobar didn't want to go along with, you know, giving up 50% of his product just to give the appearances to the American public that, the, you know, the U.S. government is making headway in this quote-unquote war on drugs. I wonder if they have... Similar agreements in place with these bankers to where you know every so many years we're going to come in and we're going to charge you with flouting, flaunting the banking laws and, and nobody don't worry though nobody's going to go to jail. You ain't got to worry about that. But you just you know you just going to have to pay a fine to the U.S. Treasury. Do you think that it's possible such as that they are actually you know doing something? <laughs> We we know so, and we can refer to ch- the community to a lot of
4: the public records. Uh, there is a book, God's Banker, A History of Money and Power at the Vatican. If it's being done there at the Vatican, many of the people remember world-famous banker Edmund Safra, who ran into a safe room in a house that was supposedly burning, as opposed to running out. Because he thought that somebody was going to get him, whereas some drug money had come up missing. Hmm. So when we look at the murder of people highly connected with the Vatican's money, when we look at the Italian banking money, when we look at the local Bank of America, when we look at Penny Bowles, the Bank of New York Mellon. Sometimes these same conspiracies emerge where these CEOs or these wealthy uh, corporate execs are murdered, sometimes even in their homes, under some of the most dubious circumstances. It's because monies and other things have oftentimes come up missing. So, yes, my dear brother, you are onto something quite heavy there with that assessment.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I just really thought about it. like the information you shared because I had never heard that about them having. You know, that's why Pablo was killed is because. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. But I, you know, I'm keep thinking. You know, what kind of message does it send? What kind of deterrent is it for bankers to stop laundering drug money? uh if no if they never go to jail and never even have to give up the, resign their jobs and they just pay, paying a portion of the profits that they've made from this drug uh laundering this drug money, so you know uh man, you're just really making me think you know thank you so much for writing this book and coming on and sharing the information that you're sharing today yes but
4: but well, well, now let's be clear
2: there there's not supposed to be an incentive to not launder the money.
4: If the whole system within and of itself is corrupt, mm-hmm. to not launder the money would be equivalent to Walmart not opening the doors to let the customers in. Mm-hmm. So that exist. Inside of the last 50 years or better, the, the the lines of credit, all these things have been tightened in a way now that gives means and access just for the purpose of laundering funds. So there's no incentive there because when you make the rules and you are able to come to the table as a ruled or or, or rule-specifying player, there's no incentive. There's no need to worry about anything because if it all comes down, just a simple slap on the wrist, you'll be back on the street in six weeks. Mm
2: And. Other than where was there any other involvement by corporations other than, you know, what you talked about in them making these chemicals that's needed to process the drugs? What what other corporations cause I think in the information that I was that was uh, sent to me by Sister Cece, you know, it it mentioned like even a Ford motor credit. <laughs> you know, a uh, company and, and then, um, uh, um, what's another one? I remember hearing about during Vietnam, my father was telling me that it was a tire company. Uh, what was the name of that tire company? Yeah. That would probably be good year. Good year. Good year was involved in a lot of the smuggling, uh, as well. So, so today, you know, outside of the chemical production by the petroleum companies, what other corporations, and we just talked about the banks, what other corporations might be benefited, benefiting and players in the drug trade, the international drug trade? We would have to look at Coca Cola. Coca Cola. We want to look at
4: Coca Cola for the simplicity of coca-cola's patent that it even held on a rfid device that went along the bottom of the barrels of the containers that was used to ship ether in and out this was an excellent way of tracking where the barrels the 55 gallon drums would go when they were shipped into places like columbia and some of the most remote parts of the jungle that companies like that were heavily invested in that uh Moody's Corporation, who sometimes groups like that, they have to be the bond riders, MetLife, McGraw-Hill Financial, there has to be insurance put on these ships or these cargo planes that run in these vessels. You can't possibly convince us in the community that you don't know and that you don't have a hand in it, based exclusively on the fact that too many of America's former CIA assets have testified to the regions of that world, to the islands that they bought and purchased, that they were used exclusively for drug running and shipping. So, again, when Malcolm X was calling this out, he didn't know and understand at the time that there's a central spot, there's a central source where all the major corporations go and sit down and have their big policy meetings. Now, here's where the money laundering gets interesting. When we look at these organizations and see how they function, in an organization that gets all kinds of corporations together, the financial industry, the banking, the non-bank financial institutions, and even real estate, sometimes when combined, make up close to 40% of the board of directors of just one organization that has the power to protect the drug network that spans the globe.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Sounds like a lot of my front companies, for the purpose of laundering.
4: Pretty much. Pretty much. Now, of course, we know how it works in the world. You can give credence to almost anything on the earth if you play it upright or properly. But when it is exposed in the news or in the media, one of the things that makes the story a story is the simplicity of whether or not the media will even cover it. Hmm. If the media doesn't cover it, in most instances, it ain't no news. But the reality is when white folk get angry with white folk and they tell on other white folk, we miss the ball by not standing in the outfield to catch the pop-ups. And I use the analogy of baseball because, see, some of these pop-ups come in the form of people who are whistleblowers, people who get angry, people who tell on them. And they write and publish these tell-all books that more often than not, we say, well, that's just white supremacy, white men are just lying. Well, sometimes white folks are not always lying just for sake of deceiving. Sometimes white folks are telling the truth because they get sick of what other white folks have done on a larger scale.
2: They fall out with each other. Yes.
4: Hmm. And this is where good investigative reporting comes in in the heart of the black community so that we can step up to the plate and educate our people, and in some instances, stave off or stop some of the destruction that appears to continuously be self-inflicted.
2: You know, uh, mentioning uh, the role again, you, we were just talking about the media, and earlier you mentioned Gary Webb and it was either earlier this year or late last year the um the film came out shoot the messenger which was about um you know gary webb's uh investigative reporting and how the other newspapers like the new york times and you know big name publications la times and and how they were trying to discredit him and and all this and that and whatnot but but particularly what I was t- taking note was is how that film was not being widely promoted and distributed you know by by the traditional channels and whatnot. And and a lot of people don't even know that film exists so just how they try to suppress the little bit of information that does get out uh, that just came to my mind when you were talking about that you know one of those pop ups and what not and we don't catch it that's um, right now, I, as we get ready to uh, wrap wrap up the interview, I you know I got uh, questions about okay black leadership or some people call it black misleadership or I come up with a, a name where I feel like black people who are in positions of quote unquote power like a congressman, like a senator, like a mayor, like a you know a- anybody who who ha- holds a, a political office or public office in. <laughs> I, I wonder how much they know about this. Let's let's just focus on, let's say, the Black Political Caucus. All right. How, do, has anybody tried presenting this information to them? Or do you feel like they know what's going on, but, you know, they want to hold on to their jobs and their lives. And so that's why, you know, they not doing anything about it or talking about it in the communities like they were holding back in the 1980s in Los Angeles, where, you know, I I can look back and I saw they were having community meetings with officials on the crack cocaine epidemic that, you know, was hitting L.A. particularly hard. So what do you think the level of involvement or level of knowledge of these black you know, quote-unquote, political leaders is on on this topic we're discussing today.
4: Their their understanding of that would have to be absolutely 100%. And we need look no further than the Iran-Contra hearings. We've got to remember one scenario in which an individual stepped forward to begin a discussion on something in which the hand was placed over the mic that that was a very sensitive piece. And that it touched on a deeply detailed part of national security that they did not wish to bring up and have mentioned in the public hearings. That point can be used to understand this is the ignition switch in pulling the lid off of the war on drugs. This was the ignition switch that led us up some few years later to the emergence of the 911 event or 911 event in which we now have been brought, the USA Patriot Act, Mm -hmm. parts one and two, which lead us into different phases. Mm -hmm. Here in Baltimore, we did a series of lectures on that, laying out, beyond conspiracy, just laying out the political facts, there is a movement towards a new world order. The essence of the order is that the world is to be run by just a few, just an elite, all the others are servants. And what we have done is categorized it in a way that we dealt with the black political leaders, the black businesses, and the black churches in the final phase of the new world order. If Europeans are cutting throats, if they're destroying jobs, if they're busting down corporations and the banking systems of entire countries, it's only logical that that black congressional caucus no one understand these things because they're in slots. Where they have to protect it in order to maintain their own jobs. So wow. they are not innocent in no way, shape, form, or fashion.
2: Wow, wow. Um, question from, um, a listener. Um, and this goes back to something that you discussed earlier. The question is Did the illusion of the black drug kingpin? exist before the eighties and the nineties. You were speaking earlier about, you know, uh when that crack cocaine epidemic kinda blew up how the media um gave the appearance and the perception to the public that oh this is just a problem in the black community see these black people is the problem they the ones that's behind all this and and that's why we got to be tough on crime and put them into slavery you know for a lifetime so did this illusion of a black drug kingpin exist before the 80s and 90s is the uh, our listener's question
4: that's a very excellent question, and we can go back to Hollywood. We can connect Hollywood and the media together as one unit. we got to remember those old black exploitation movies, mm-hmm. Super Fly, Freddy's Dead, and others, because it was these community movies that were building the imagery of what was supposed to be the emergence at a later date and time of a kingpin. And what we really have to remember is that these movies were emerging in the late 60s going into the 70s, and sometimes we have to understand how white warfare is waged against us. They will take a 10, 20, 30-year process to build us to bring you to a particular point of what we call vulnerable suggestibility, mm-hmm. meaning We've been showing you the graphic imagery of a particular idea for a while until it's deeply embedded in the minds of all of you so that when we suggest that this is what it is, you are vulnerable and now we can suggest it to you and you'll say, oh, yeah, that is the truth. So that's where the imagery started. It started as they were bringing brothers back from the Vietnam War and they were hooking us on drugs and they were showing us these movies. Next thing you know. By the 80s, we were going into it heavily, crack cocaine hit around 83, 84, all hell broke loose. But brothers were getting bigger cars, bigger houses, sweatsuits, gold chains. There was a connection between the rap world and the drug underworld. And then it went from the drug underworld into the record industry. And then the thing just kept moving up the chain. But the drug ghost or the drug demon never stopped pursuing the black community's image.
2: You know, this even go, it even goes back further than the sixties when I think about, um, 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 things like reefer madness films like that and and at that time how they were talking about you know these white women going in and hanging out with these black uh jazz musicians and they getting hooked on this reefer and and all this and that and so i i i guess you know you are right as i think back and remember some of the things that i have read in my in my research and my study in, in terms of media's role in promoting the quote-unquote drug war so yeah yeah so the answer to the question is yes right yes sir wow one thing you brought up one thing that brought up again you know i like to also uh when we do get information from the mainstream media or any other media sources doesn't have to just be the corporate media um when you were talking talking about You know, the Patriot Act and, and things that sprang up after 9-11. And so we've been hearing reports like about, you know, the NSA, massive spying that Eric Snowden, you know, kind of, uh, was the whistleblower on that. And then, you know, we started getting all this other information. And one of the things that the NSA was doing was feeding, uh, some of this illegally, uh, obtained information and feeding it to the DEA. And the DEA was then feeding it to local police departments to go and arrest little low low you know, low level Street dealers, you know the boys on the corner, or, or you know just the ones that may be you know a, a a street level distributor or something like like that, and they were even teaching them the prosecutors on the local level how to lie about how they obtained that information because I also think that there is another component. To the drug war besides the profit motive, even though profit is the motive for 21st century slavery and human trafficking. But we can't ignore the 70 percent, the estimated 70 percent of people on these uh, uh new age prison plantations. Are non-violent so-called drug offenders, and 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 a lot of this illegal spying and stuff. Again, you know, it is it, being directed to destroy the black community, destroy black families, and make them look like they're the problem. Why? That we know that they're ignoring, you know, most of the low-level drug activity in the white communities, like you know where I live. Right, <laughs> and, and and you know,
4: dear brother, to add one point to that. Our communities would have to understand their modicum of justification for the incarceration of non-violent drug offenders is as plain as the nose on our face. These same corporations that we're accusing of being heavily involved or heavy-handedly involved in the illegal drug trade have other aspects or divisions that profit from the corrections industry. Right. you see, now that you've privatized the corporation, a brother can't go and get a job mm-hmm. at Microsoft and earn 25 to $30 an hour. But if he's doing a 5 to 10-year stretch in a prison in San Quentin, he can sit in his cell all day and shrink-wrap packages of Windows 2000 mm-hmm. for $2 a day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when we look at Victoria's Secret, Justin's,
2: uh Walmart, Target's. Order. I'm sorry, go ahead. I said Walmart, Targets. Uh, That's right. I mean, just so many of them. I'm Unicor. Now, th- think about this, people, and i talked about this before. Unicor is a private corporation, but it doesn't have shareholders. It has one owner. Guess who that owner is? The federal government, right? hmm the federal government and i'm you know i'm gonna write an article later today and and share this video that's showing all these black women in a call center now i I thought i was like man they're doing call center work i used to work at a sprint pcs call center in charlotte north carolina and and the majority of the employees were black women and then when i looked at that unicorn Video, I'm like, yeah, that's where them call center jobs is going to. See, they not just shipping them to India anymore. They bringing those kind of jobs back and giving them to you while you in prison. But while you out here on the street, you can't get a job. So yeah yeah wow 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 I really enjoy this interview with you I am going to make sure that I get the book Drug Kingpin Fact Fiction Friend or Foe Is there anything else that that you that we didn't touch upon that you would like to share with the listeners and also you know tell them again how they can get the book.
4: Uh, they can get the book. They can call exclusively to the Baltimore branch. He's the exclusive supplier. The store is everyone's place. The number there is 410-728-4080. Again, that's 410-728-4080. The book is Drug Pen, Fact, Fiction, Friend or Foe. And they do mail order. They ship that out. And Brother will handle it for you as best
2: he can. Brother David, I, I do. I, I remember my one question. I forgot. I forgot. Yes, it, sir, uh, go right ahead. Yeah. Now, we talked about the problem. What is the solution for our communities that's being preyed upon?
4: Man, probably one of the. We, we, we like to march and to protest. If we held a day, if we wanted to get really creative in this, if we had a, a, a day of burning, get us uh, some community trash cans and, and everybody just had a day of burning. No drug paraphernalia, uh, no drug sales and or distribution. Everybody just stop. Drug dealers, hufters, everybody. Hold your pocket for one day. Don't spend a dime. Let's watch the financial impact that we had on America and watch ourselves as we slowly wean up off of their narcotic system and see if we wouldn't be able to emerge a stronger, more victorious people. Hmm. But as long as we keep feeding the beast, the beast is going to get stronger and stronger, and we'll get weaker and weaker.
2: We do have one more phone call. I'm going to take this last uh, call because... They've been hanging on. Area code 480. Thank you for being patient with us today. Uh, do you have a question, comment, or observation you would like to share with me or uh, our guest today, Mr. David Johnson, Sr.? Uh,
0: greetings, Mr. Johnson and Mr. Reed.
2: Greetings um, to you. Greetings.
0: Th- thank you. Uh, you sort of touched on it a couple of times, but the the human trafficking part which the part that I'm concerned about is the prison system, but also the one with the cargo ships that kept getting um, caught at the, um, what do they call it, the ports full of immigrants and illegal people coming from other countries, which is another aspect of the human trafficking that has to do hand-in-hand with this drug trafficking trade as, as well. Um, So I just wanted to see if Mr. Johnson has any information when it comes to that. And then also the last thing um, is the MENA connection, because Bill Clinton in Arkansas back in the 80s, um, he was the governor there. He was involved with drug trafficking um, through the United States Air Force and some other things that had came out in MENA. So can you please... um, comment on the Clinton connection to this, as well as the human trafficking, um, as in sex slavery, child slavery, human part organs being harvested and um, sent in on these cargo planes and private uh, jets and things that are also smuggling in drugs into the communities and taking human lives, not only into the prison system, but into operating roads, taking their organs and shipping them off as well. And if you know of anything... That has to do with that in your research. Thank you.
4: Yes, well, well, well. Let's do this. Let's let's take the the series of questions. Let's take them from the back and work our way forward. Okay. Okay. What we can't what we can't forget is that three drug dealers in the early '80s and '90s stood up and ran for the office of president. Now let's set the record straight on this. Bill Clinton was the governor in Arkansas at that time, and it was in Mena, Arkansas, where the underground bunkers were that were storing and or housing the crack cocaine or the kilos that were to be used to be shipped around the nation. George Bush was the president at that time who was a former director of the Central Intelligence Agency who had full-scale knowledge of the drugs and or shipping routes that came into the country because we have pictures of Mr. Bush himself meeting with uh, group leaders such as uh, several of the cartel people. And you're and talking Bush about the father.
2: You're talking about, yeah. just for clarification, you're talking about President George H.W. Bush who was uh, exactly. Reagan's vice president and then had one term. Right. Okay.
4: Now we we got to link them in because remember the three of them stood up at the same time to run for president: H. Ross Perot, Bill Clinton, and George Herbert Walker Bush. Now we got to remember that Ross Perot was also the owner of a private corporate army, and we cannot overrule the fact that public records show that those armies supported and guarded the ships that brought that that those shipments in as they were caught and were taken to that ground base because it was Barry seal that named those names of those people that were involved now that's a part of the public record here's where the story gets interesting as far as the human trafficking is concerned again when Malcolm who could not identify the Council on Foreign Relations laid out what sets the tone for all public policy in the United States as far as foreign policy is concerned I would suggest to the listener to go back to the local libraries in your area. Foreign Affairs Magazine. You don't have to go back for three years, and it's a total of about 18 issues, to find a series of articles that the Council on Foreign Relations ran about how and why they were going to let illegal immigrants into into the country the illegals that were coming in that were being documented wasn't the key part of the source problem the key part was those who were again being brought in in the human trafficking aspect that also were used as the mules to bring drugs in across the line those were the people that were the most heavily victimized by it because when they hit the shores of this country they were dumped straight into the prisons which, mm-hmm. which produced that prison pipeline that mm-hmm. gave you that
2: that slave labor man, thank you, thank you for bringing that up because you know it's important As we have on this station over the past couple of days been talking about immigration and whether or not it's harming the black community and and I take the position that these people are victims. These people are victims and they wouldn't be coming here if they didn't feel like they had to, if they weren't, you know, being used or or being farmed for slave labor. And like I said, they will never... Uh, decriminalize 11 million so-called undocumented immigrants because, you know, they're making too much money off of catching, picking them up off the street and then putting them in, you know, a private facility like the geo group or the correction corporations of America, where they will then also do slave labor, you know, for slave wages and, and, and in the past few months we've been seeing a lot of uprisings going on in these immigrant uh detention facilities. But I'm glad that you, you brought that aspect to this immigration that these people are victims. Yes,
4: yes they are. And and one of the things that the American public has to really look at everybody across the board, black and white. If we were to go back in the late 60s going into the 70s, people had the jobs, they could walk out of their front door, go a few blocks from their home, work, and could send their children to college and retire safely on that salary. Then, those Mexican and Latin American countries, they had very cheap labor. Companies were shipping, they moved, they transferred themselves into those countries, and those people labored for 25 to 50 cents an hour, whereas we made 15 and $20 an hour here. Simultaneously, they began to bust and scale down wages in America so that people couldn't make it on 15 and $20 an hour, and the employers wanted to then pay you 10 and $20 an hour. So the next phase was to now bring those jobs back to the U.S., make them highly skilled jobs, slightly increase the wages, and then allow what they kept calling illegal immigrants. So now he could come across the border where he was making 50 cents an hour, and he could get that job that you made, $25 an hour. He'd now get it and earn $5, which put him in heaven psychologically, because $5 is a great deal above 50 cents an hour. And this is how they play all the people in America off against each other.
2: Hmm. hmm. And like was pointed out, we're all uh the primary victims of human trafficking in in modern day slavery. Wow. Uh yes. sister sister, did he satisfactorily answer your questions?
0: Yes, uh um Mr. Scotty, uh Mr. Scotty, Missouri. <laughs> um and thank you, Mr. Johnson, for answering that. And I have one more um comment or question, if that's okay. Sure,
2: please go ahead.
0: Okay. Um, currently, there's a situation going on in Mexico with um, the uh, hostages being taken by uh, cartels and being murdered and things like that. Is that directly related to um, the drug trafficking and smuggling industry? And where is cocaine and heroin coming from? Where where are those two things primarily harvested and transferred? into and and to the United States, because I, I really don't know.
4: Well, all, all one has to do is look at the history and the series of America's wars. Usually in countries like that, wherever America goes in to do wars, now we all are quite familiar with the fact that heroin is a, a, a major product of the poppy fields of Afghanistan. Right. Is, it, is it not a strange coincidence that once America went in to begin to wage the war in Afghanistan, that heroin use began to rise in America simultaneously? So we have to be able to look at things like that to know it and to understand it. Now, as far as the Mexico connection, I can't really speak to that because here in Baltimore, we got another major problem going on with their exacerbating tension between the community and the police, and the people are now looking at a very sophisticated format of political murder, of what we're calling uh, murder under color of law. See, these countries now, as they're moving into the final phase of the new world order, one thing they must do is criminalize most human behavior and or activity. Because once you criminalize it, it justifies more police presence, more military armaments and developments of arms, so that when you're ready to drop the hammer or lower the boom on the people in America, it will all, even in the minds of the American public, have been justified because you played it up and you duped everybody on the issue of crime. Mm-hmm. Simultaneously, the FBI's uniform crime reports, say that overall crime in the United States is dropping. Mm-hmm. How can tr- crime simultaneously be dropping if the media is perpetually playing it out in America, in Mexico, in countries in Africa? in different countries in southern Europe. All the countries that are now not fully compliant with the emerging direction of the New World Order are also the same countries that are the most heavily hit with drugs and crime and street killings. So there's a pattern and the pattern is clear. Somebody's setting the tone in the direction to smash all the countries as they tighten the noose
2: for the New World Order.
4: Thank you. Makes
0: sense? Yes it does perfectly.
2: Especially when in light of the current J Helm exercise. You aware of that, um uh Mr Johnson?
4: um mm, slightly. Go ahead and fill me in on what you got on.
2: Okay, J. Jay, Jay Helm is is um regular military, mostly special forces, are having joint military exercises with law enforcement police departments sheriff's departments all across the united states and and so where they are practicing in some areas you know rural warfare if something was to go down here in the united states and and they have long been having these exercises in cities i was the victim of one of those exercises in charlotte and when i say victim meaning that early in the morning i'm catching the bus to go to school you know i was in college at the time going to school and then. I'm seeing Black Hawk helicopters and I know what, you know, this is a military helicopter because I was attached to an aviation unit when I was in the United States military. So I'm seeing these Black Hawk helicopters and, and these guys repelling and I'm hearing shooting and stuff like that. And, and they were playing urban warfare a- exercises. And so, so what you're talking about in, in, in terms of them preparing uh, for a new world order, I also think, you know, we had to pay attention to those exercises like J-Him. J- you know, military, regular military is not supposed to be conducting exercises of this nature off base you can have them on base but in terms of getting out here in the population and stuff they're not supposed to do that because of posse comitatus and so at the same time this also prepares the public it prepares the public for for the presence of military troops on the ground, boots on the ground. You know that's why you see like doing Ferguson and and other uprisings throughout the United States. We saw a lot of these people in what military gear. We couldn't tell the difference between if you're military or whether you're supposed to be a civilian police deport, uh, department because you look the same. The equipment is the same. And, and so you know, I'm just saying that people need to pay attention. And I think this Jade Helm exercise that's going on kind of plays they're practicing for what you were just talking about
4: that's right
2: does that make sense
4: Uh, absolutely my dear friend absolutely Mm -hmm. so 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 the, the war on drugs within and of itself we we label that as a complete fraud but it, ha- it has to be acknowledged that it has been highly effective in disrupting the hearts and minds of the people all across the country because more often than not, we have to admit it, no one really wants crime and drugs in their neighborhood. but no. With no other options available, many times people are just self-medicating, trying to just make it through the next day.
2: Right, right. Suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, living behind these enemy lines under uh, racism and white supremacy. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and and then there's that economic component there's a reason why you know there are no jobs primarily where black people live there's a reason for that they want us to get out here on these corners and sell drugs so they can just you know snatch us up and put us into modern slavery that's my opinion on it Well, well brother Johnson again man Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for writing this book. Like I said, I'm going to uh, do my best to get the book in the next co- couple of weeks. And certainly we would like to have you back and even become a regular. Anytime you write something or you feel like, you know, more black people need to know about this. And 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 so you the door is open for our outlet to you, sir. And we hope that you will take advantage of it and come back and share uh, with the people that listen to this station.
4: I certainly will, and I thank you for having me as well, and you make certain that you keep in touch with me, my dear friend.
2: I I will do that. You have a good day, sir.
4: Yes, sir. Thank you once again for having me. Peace to you.
2: All right. That was uh, Mr. David Johnson, Sr. The book is Drug Kingpin, Fact, Fiction, Friend, or Foe. Um, Yesterday, let me see. The hate crime, I mentioned yesterday that I was going to discuss today the hate crime that occurred to those black teens down there in uh, McKinney, Texas, I believe is where that occurred, McKinney, Texas, and so I'm seeing the headlines and I'm seeing people talk about calling it a pool fight. Look, people, there was not no pool fight, all right? That was an attack on those black children. There was no fight, all right? Okay, you had black children practicing self-defense. What you saw happening in McKinney, Texas, in that neighborhood, where those children live, mind you, was a hate crime. That was a hate crime. When you have grown adults attacking our children verbally with racial slurs and 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 racial stereotypes you know telling them why don't y'all go back to public eight housing and, and things of that nature and then one of those grown women slaps one of those children look that was no pool fight that was a terrorist attack on our black children so let us not keep using that language i may have used it in the past and calling it a pool fight so my bad i won't do it again it was not a pool fight and the media want us to call it a pool fight because when you see a fight in in a fight there are two combatants there are two parties who are participating in a fight all right i do not consider adults jumping on children to be a fight okay that was a little 14 year old teenage girl that a grown ass white woman assaulted that was not a fight that was not a fight and some background information on the officer who has now resigned is he had been sued before he had been sued in the past for uh um um what he did to a black male and just to give you some background information because I don't have an article I'm just generalized what the article said he was the subject of a lawsuit not very long ago may have been a couple of years ago he and some other officers were the subject of this lawsuit this black male was riding in his car with two white females were in the car with him that's probable cause right there for a white male racist suspect what is this nigga doing with these pretty white girls what what is he doing with you know what we need to stop them and find out what's going on what this, this nigga might be kidnapping them or us uh, so, so anyway they pull him over simply because it was black a black male in a car with white women so then when they stopped the car, they talking out. He says, oh, I see two marijuana seeds, two cannabis seeds and, and, and what? Two seeds. Right. In an open container. All right. So then they jack him up, slam his face all against the hood of the car. It was more than one cop. Uh Slam his face on the hood of the car repeatedly. The young man said in his lawsuit. Uh Then they to humiliate him in front of those white women that, that you know, he was a uh, uh, transporting they pulled his pants down in the middle of the street and he even claimed his lawsuit it was a sexual assault and the first thing that came to my mind was the lawsuit that was filed against panatello in new york who choked out eric gardner and murdered eric gardner in new york he had also been a sued sued for the same thing Pulling this black man's pants down and then, you know, doing things to their genitals. And so they did that to this young man down there in in McKinney, Texas. And so then they they charged him with resisting arrest, I believe, charged him with drug possession. And but. The charges ended up getting dismissed. Now, when he filed his lawsuit, the charges were still pending. And the judge who was over the civil portion of his lawsuit um, jurisdiction uh, said that I'm going to dismiss this. But you can refile it after your criminal case is over. Well, it was never a criminal case because the charges got dismissed. But that young man never did refile his lawsuit. Somebody needs to tell him he needs to file that, refile that lawsuit. All right. So this cop has a history, has a history of brutalizing black people and so then you know that was the second terrorist attack the first terrorist attack was by the white women the second terrorist attack was by those cops that came afterwards the, we have to start looking at these things for what they are these are terrorist attacks all you have to do is look up the definition of terrorism and then you will see that that is what we are seeing these especially in terms of police The use of violence and intimidation in the pursuit of political aims. Why do the police use so much violence against us what political aim could they be you well the politics of it is the 13th amendment that says that slavery and human uh, excuse me slavery and involuntary servitude have never been abolished except for as punishment for a crime and we just got through talking to mr johnson and several times during the conversation the private prison industry was brought up and, and how they're making Uh, all of this money by enslaving non-white people won't give them a job when they on the outside but mighty funny they'll find you a job once you get on the inside on that prison plantation so this is terrorism people it's really you know we calling it the drug war and whatnot but it's terrorism it's terrorism that's what it is these are attacks on our communities and um so yeah, let's stop talking about that was a pool fight. That wasn't no fight. That was not a fight. That was a terrorist attack. That was a terrorist uh, attack. And no and, and those white women, uh those white women that would you know no grown folks don't fight children. They attack children. Okay. Uh did you have a comment, sis? Uh yes, Mr. Reed. On um on
0: that subject you're talking about, the, there was a press conference today with his lawyers uh the officers well i don't even like to use that word officer because that
2: slave you know, catcher to
0: me that's like respect you know
2: yeah the slave but, catcher terrorist
0: terrorist <laughs> there you go <laughs> uh this terrorist said that he was stressed out that's why he reacted the way he did with the barrel roll you know don't forget he he did a he did a combat role
2: I think he just so fell he, on his face. I think he was a Keystone yeah. cop and fell on his face. <laughs> I don't think that was any kind of strategic move. It's not
0: funny, but it's funny the way I'll be, gee whiz. But, um, yeah, and also they said that the young man, that the only man that was arrested, uh, they dismissed his charges. Mm-hmm. Um, Also, today they gave that update.
2: I, I wasn't even aware that someone was even arrested, so... So that's yes, that's.
0: yes, it was a young black man mm-hmm. on the far left of the officer that um, came to help and, and calm down the girl that ran away when he drew his gun on him. He's the one that was arrested, was the one that the officer, this uh, terrorist, uh, pointed his weapon at.
2: Okay. Oh, and the charges were dismissed.
0: Yes. And 19 a, years old okay. young black man.
2: And another point that I heard um, brought up was that. None of these teens or their parents have filed charges against those white women as of yet. The only ones who've made a, an official complaint is the white women. But we have the evidence and, and there are witnesses that no, they were the aggressors. They were the attackers. They were the terrorists. But they not, they not just gonna go arrest this white woman if nobody files a complaint. So we need to stay on our job, you know, in doing what we supposed to do. You know, Uh there are many things we can do, you know, but in in th- situations like that, come on, people, we got to we got to stay on the ball. We got to, you know, not let these things just because I'm sure some people will say, well, let's not take it any further let's just have another community barbecue and we'll bring all the parties together and they'll get to know each other and then we'll have peace and, and all that no no,
0: mr reed the <laughs> online community has identified uh the white the white one of the white women involved. one of them right in this altercation and they have identified her place of work
2: bank and of america
0: suspended hearsay is from her job for now But those criminal charges have been brought against her.
2: Right. And and that's why I'm saying those parents or those children themselves, I don't know. I I don't know if a minor can make a police complaint, but they need to file their complaint because you got the video. You got the witnesses you you even got the white kids you know snitching on them and saying what they did and how they started it. And, and those people need to be made to pay um i'm gonna take i'm gonna take one more call um I do need to to wrap up and refresh my computer so that I can um have no as minimum problems as possible because my system acting up a little bit uh for tando radio show tando radio shows coming up here at six o'clock uh the topic will be the weapon of uh, indignation emp emp uh, tax. So, uh, Tando Radio Show will be coming up following Black Talk Radio News at 6 o'clock PM Eastern Time. I'm gonna take this call from area code 717. Uh, thank you for calling in. What's on your mind? Please share.
5: Hey, brother Scott, this is brother Davis, man. Hey. Uh, you know, a citizen that was at that party, that mother, she literally can make a citizen's arrest on that woman who struck the 14 year old child. And we gotta stop letting the media who it's actually maybe five or six people in the United States and around the world, we have to stop letting them uh, name and title circumstances right. like this as they occur. Because mm-hmm. they always put a mild twist on it when they're people of, of, of the opposite, uh, when, when they're Europeans,
2: but mm-hmm. when they're black
5: people, they always put a hostile terroristic to it. So mm-hmm. we got to be just as vocal, like you say, with the terms we use, in reference to how it's affecting our community and yes that was a terrorist attack by a white woman on a child and that's just how it should be conveyed Mm -hmm. thank you
2: brother thank you thank you brother davis so again instead of the headline being pool fight it should have been a pool attack you know what I'm saying? You, cause again, think of what fight means. Fight means when I think of a fight, some people might think of a boxing match. Well, that's two people who are coming together and having a fight, who are, who are, what's the best way I can, uh, say this, who have the same skill level or who are equally matched. A, a grown woman fighting a 14 year old child. No, that, that's, they, they, no, that's not equal footing. That's not an equal match. And I don't care if, if the child actually ends up whooping that grown person's behind in self-defense. It still was an attack on a child. And, and like I shared on Facebook, there is a, a, a pool that my daughters take, you know, their children to in this community and, and it's predominantly white, but it, it's kind of mixed, but it's predominantly white. Now, could you imagine if I rolled up there to that pool? And I, and I just, you know, cuss, start cussing out these little white kids and saying, you little dirty crackers, go wash your ass before you get in this pool or whatnot, you know, and, and then one of those kids said, you shouldn't be speaking to me that way. That's wrong. And I slap him in the face. What the hell y'all think gonna happen to Scotty? Huh? Huh? Scotty gonna terroristic. get- <laughs>
5: That's terroristic, brother. You would not only be in jail, people would probably forget over a period of time. because so they still take it out the media and everything. They don't want nobody to know you because, remember now, the National uh, Authorization Act gives them the right to literally incarcerate people without telling anybody for any length of time.
2: Or charging them with a crime.
5: Absolutely. Don't even I have to charge them. It. Listen, it's always good.
2: All right. Oh, okay. All right, people, I need to uh wrap it up so I can refresh some of my software so that we won't have uh any problems getting Tando Radio Show on the air. Um I'm going to close it out with this uh community announcement. If you live down in Houston, Texas, we just got through talking about Texas. If you down there in Houston, Texas, um stay tuned for this public service announcement because it pertains to people that live in that area peace and blessings to all I want to thank you know uh sister CC who helped put together this program I want to thank our guest uh, Mr. David Johnson senior for writing his book and coming on and sharing information on this important topic. And I want to thank all the callers for their questions and observations. I will be back on air tomorrow at four o'clock PM. Oh, I can't. That's right. I'll be on air tonight at eight o'clock PM. After the Tando radio show, uh, on New Abolitionist Radio, which is also hosted by Max Parthis and Johanna Elias. So Wednesdays is always a full day of programming for us. So stay, stay tuned. Peace and blessings to all. If you live in Houston, Texas, you are invited to the Sundiata Okoli Shaka Sankofa Community Garden on the first Saturday of the month up until September to learn gardening skills from the head gardener and build together with the community. They are looking for people to come out ready to work and get their hands dirty. You do not have to have any experience in gardening. All food grown from the garden is available to the community. The garden was named after Sundiata Acoli, who is a political prisoner that has been enslaved for more than 40 years, and comrade in struggle, Shaka Sankofa, who was killed June 22nd in 2000. Sundiata, when asked what we can do in support of the political prisoner, said, Build a garden we must be able to do for self in the name of self-determination. The garden is located at 2428 sophomore in houston texas again come out on the first of every month starting around seven o'clock a.m if you have an event that is free and open to the public and want to announce it on black talk radio send an email to admin at black dot com okay round two name
5: something that's not boring
0: laundry Ooh, a book club